just a reminder on the uh, giving today. Today is our second mission giving. So any given that uh, any any uh, offering that's given today, whether online or in person, is going to automatically go towards our mission partners, our Hispanic ministry, and our benevolence fund. If you would desire that that not be the case, today would be the day you you indicate on your giving that that's not the case, because normally it would just go generally to our budget. But otherwise, we're going to put all of it towards raising the the total goal for our missions giving Sundays. And uh, we sent out an email about that on Friday. Hopefully, you've seen that and you can see the uh, the, the goals there. And then along with our mission partners, I'll just put before you again, um, tomorrow night at 6.30, we'll have Wawa from Step Seminary in Haiti. He'll be here at 6.30 in the gathering area. We'll have some cookies and some tea and things like that so um, that we can hear an update from him and, and uh, what's going on in Haiti. All right? All right, with that, grab your Bibles. And uh, we're going to be in several places this morning. If you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs there around you. We're going to start in the, the uh, fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is where we're going to be starting. I'll pull up a page number here in just a moment if you're using the Bible from the chairs there. Now, we're going to be um, in several different places. Some of them I'll have um, page numbers for you. Others of them I just intend for us to look real quickly at and say, hey, I want you to know this is here. Maybe you jot those verses down or you take a quick picture of it or whatever, but I'm not going to spend as much time on it, and that's why I'm not going to put a page number. But you are always welcome, and in fact, I always encourage you to be turning or, or going in your, on your device to wherever we're going because you need to see what's being put before you and make sure I'm not making this stuff up. All right. All right. So um, have you ever wondered um, when you're traveling to a particular city? I, I've heard people describe places they visit and they say, you know, there's just a there's a darkness there. There's an oppressive uh, feeling there. Have you ever had an experience like that? And, and you you know, it, it's associated with this particular area or this particular city or this particular country. I know many people when you travel to Haiti, that's been the, the description is there just seems to be a, a darkness. Even though there's hope and there's believers there, there's over the whole country, there seems to be like a, a darkness, an oppressiveness. Sin just seems to run rampant and it's not filtered, and it's not hidden. It's just there for the eyes to see and behold. You ever had an experience like that? Or maybe you've heard somebody talk like that? The things that we're going to talk about this morning get into possibilities as to why that may be. Why, why is it that one particular place or city or town or state or country seems darker maybe than other places? Or why is, why is this area particularly given over to a, a certain type of sin, but that sin's not running rampant in this area? That's the kind of stuff that comes up when somebody mentions territorial spirits. And the idea behind territorial spirits is just that there is some kind of spiritual being that is present influencing a particular territory a particular country, state, region, something like that. The question really we have to ask is when we hear things like that is, is that biblical? Is, that, is, there, is there biblical support that we can find for the idea of there are certain spirits that seem to, to have a particular influence in a particular area? And if so, then what does that look like? How do we respond and what's our responsibility? That, that's the kind of questions we're asking as we go through this battleground series. And so Here's what we're looking at this morning, but here's where we're ultimately going. I'm, I'm going to show you in scriptures that there are spiritual beings ruling over nations, and they influence rebellion against God. Straightforward statement. I hope that after we are done here this morning, based on some of the scriptures that we see, you'll come to the same conclusion. There are spiritual beings who are ruling over nations, and they influence rebellion against God. Now, if that seems like a hard pill to swallow, I understand that. 
because it's not typically how we think. It's not part of our worldview. We, we don't typically include in our understanding of the world and how things operate, we don't oftentimes include a supernatural element to our worldview. Now, we should. As believers in Christ, we certainly believe in supernatural. I mean, we believe some pretty crazy things as believers in Christ, right? We, we, we believe that a man was killed on a cross and that he was dead, really dead, and that he rose from the dead on the third day and that he still lives and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. We, we believe that. In fact, as Christians, we, we have to, to rest on that. Otherwise, we're not Christians, right? That's a pretty crazy thing to believe. It defies nature. It defies um, natural law. It, it goes against what the world would say uh, can take place. And yet we believe that. We believe there is a God who, who is a spirit who we can't always see, but he, is, uh, he created all things and he is, he is over all things and that he works all things together, which means he's involved in things. We believe that there's a God. And most of us would have no problem believing that there are angels, good angels who help us in time of need. But when we start getting into things like this, for some reason we have a block against it. And we, we, we either don't give it thought or we haven't given it thought, or we say, no, that's not, not true. And so I just want to put before us the scriptures this morning to help expand some of our thinking and maybe ground us in what they say. So we're going to start with Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you're using the Bibles there from the chairs, you're going to make your way to page 135. And I'm just going to show you first from Deuteronomy 32. We're going to, we're going to spend just a few minutes here and then ultimately we're getting to Psalm 82 where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Deuteronomy 32 verses 7 through 9. Now, the background of these verses is this. Um, as you're tracking your way through the book of Genesis, you get to chapter 11 and you have the story, which if you've been around church for a while, you know about the story of the Tower of Babel. In fact, if you've not been around church for a while, you likely know about the story of the Tower of Babel, how God had told the people that they were to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so that was the command given. It was reissued to Noah after the flood. And then what we see when we get to chapter 11 of Genesis is the people, rather than filling the earth, they start to congregate in a particular place, a place that became known as Babel. Right? And in that place, they decided they wanted to build a tower, a name for themselves, a, a fortress for themselves. And that tower, they wanted to reach to the heavens. Why? Because it's in the heavens, that, uh, in the heavens where the gods dwell, and it's in the heavens where uh, heaven meets earth. In fact, this tower that they built was likely a ziggurat, which is commonly known in ancient Near Eastern culture. And it was a place that was built where they intended for a god, their god, whoever that god they worshipped was, to dwell. And so you've got these people in Genesis 11 building building likely a ziggurat, which is intended for a place for a deity to dwell, as opposed to acknowledging that God's throne room and his feet are, are, are that, that the throne room, the world is throne room, but the, that his feet rest here on the earth. Like the whole world is his creation, is part of his temple. Instead, they were trying to build a place from that reach to the heavens so that everyone would see it and they would know it. And you know from the story that God sees their tower and so he comes down. That's very typical, typical uh, um, intentional language. He comes down and then he confuses their language, right? Which is biblically where we get an explanation for why do people speak different languages? Because God gave those languages as a judgment to divide the people who intended to rebel against God. Which is why Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is so significant because God's bringing people back together in Christ, speaking in different tongues, but being able to understand one another because the Spirit's bringing people back together in Christ. Right? So 
divide the people by languages, but then it also, he scatters them apart so that they are now divided according to different territories. Now that's what we get in Genesis chapter 11. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we get a little more detail. We get some of the backstory. We get some of the heavenly perspective of what else was taking place when God came down and he scattered all the people. So look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. So this is Moses writing to a group of Israelites who have come out of Egypt, and they, are, they have been wandering in the desert for 40 years already. There's a generation that's been wiped out because of unbelief, and that's why they were wandering for 40 years. And now they're about to go into this land that God's been leading them to, that God had promised. And so Moses is re-explaining, re-giving the law to them. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. So he's saying, I want you to ask your your grandparents about things in the past. And here's what he gets at, verse 8. When the Most High, a reference to God, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Now stop there for a moment. When did God divide the nations, divide mankind, and fix their borders? Tower of Babel. Okay? If you go back in biblical history, what Moses is referring to, the only thing that we're aware of that Moses could possibly be referring to is that time when God came down and scattered the peoples. So Tower of Babel. So when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders or territories of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, there's a few things here. Now, raise your hand if your Bible says sons of Israel instead of sons of God. Okay, y'all just look around the room. Yep. Okay, put your hands down. Raise your hand if your translation says sons of God. All right, so those of you who are doing that, you're probably ESV, maybe New English Translation, maybe New Living Translation, something like that. Uh, those of you who, who raise your hand for the first one, maybe more NIV uh, or maybe um, King James perhaps. I can't remember all the translations that go this way. What do we do with that? So if yours says sons of Israel, you have a footnote. If yours says sons of God, you have a footnote. And in your footnote, it's gonna explain why there's different translations. And so keep this in mind, whenever you are reading your English translation, you need to understand that these are people that know the languages and who have studied these manuscripts that we have. They're, they're doing their best based on their knowledge of the language, their knowledge of the history, to determine what was the author saying. And then when they have different manuscripts that conflict, they say something different, they have to decide what's likely the original. What's most likely the original, and can we possibly explain why this other translation popped up? So some translations say sons of Israel. Now, here's the question we have to ask. Sons of Israel, and if that's the case, then we're talking about human people who, who were part of the tribe of Israel, and then ultimately somebody who, who has that understanding, they would say they were judges or they were leaders of these territories. But when did we just say that this was taking place when God divided the nations? Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. The nation of Israel is not created yet. Do you know when the nation of Israel gets created? Genesis chapter 12. When God, after scattering the people, picks one man out from amidst Babylon, the region of Mesopotamia, named Abram, calls him, gives him a covenant promise, and from him the nation of Israel comes. So it's not likely, just based on history, that God's dividing up the numbers of these territories based on the sons of Israel because Israel was not a nation yet. There's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider is this. On the technical side of it, your footnote tells you, it says the MT or the Masoretic text, 
says sons of Israel. The Masoretic text is one of the copies, the full copies of the Old Testament that we have in Hebrew, the one that we primarily get our Old Testament translations from. However, what your footnote will also tell you is it, it might say LXX. That's an abbreviation for the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. So the, the entire Old Testament translated into Greek is called the Septuagint. It might also say DSS, Dead Sea Scrolls. And so here's what your footnote is telling you. We have found some Dead Sea Scrolls, some copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1940s, whatever, and part of those scrolls, we have a copy of Deuteronomy, and that, that copy of Deuteronomy uh, says sons of God instead. And that copy of Deuteronomy dates earlier than the Masoretic text. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written before Jesus came on the scene. In fact, it was probably the primary translation of the Old Testament that people used in that day because it was in Greek. It was written before the Masoretic text was written. And so what scholars are doing in this case, they're saying, hey, we've got some manuscripts. And by the way, the Septuagint says, angelos, angels of God. And so it's taken this sons of God translation, right? So what they're telling us is it seems likely it seems likely that the, the most likely original text was sons of God, but they want you to know in the footnote, here's the other, the other um, possible translation. If your translation went sons of Israel, they're, they're doing it for a reason, but they're required by conscience just to give you, hey, we have these documents that say this instead, and it could be a possible translation. All right? That's more than you ever wanted to know, but that should be helpful for you in understanding your Bible and why we get sometimes different translations. I believe sons of God is, is the best translation. And if that's the case, we've heard about sons of God recently, haven't we? Last week, Genesis chapter six, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves and they had children from them and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Crazy stuff, right? So what we've got here is the sons of God is a class or a category of spiritual beings. Some of those sons of God, not all of them, some of those we read about in chapter six, they rebelled against God. But there's more of them. And what Deuteronomy, what Moses is telling us is that when God scattered the peoples because of their rebellion against God, as he's scattering the peoples, he puts over each of these territories a son of God, a spiritual being. And that spiritual being, that son of God was to rule over that particular area. But what does it say about God? inheritance. But the Lord's portion, his people, was Jacob, which is another way of uh, referring to Israel. So then God takes Abram out of that group, and he says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he makes a covenant with him. So that the plan now for God is, as it's unfolding, I'm going to relate with the people of Israel in a very unique way through a special covenant. God's not completely rejecting the nations. The plan is, through the people of Israel, who will be a light to the nations, that God will ultimately draw the people of these nations back to God. But he has, for the time, at this point, he has put over these, these territories, these uh, nations, spiritual beings called sons of God. Sounds pretty crazy, right? All right, B but let's keep going. There's another place we see reference. It's not an unheard of thing in, in the Bible for us to, to see spiritual beings that have some kind of ruling or authority over other nations. We're just gonna peek at Daniel, but you might write these down. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Daniel's been praying. He's been praying for his people. He's been praying repentance for his people's sins because he realizes the time is soon coming when, when God's judgment of 70 years is gonna be over. So he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. 
chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, this is an angel that has now been sent to Daniel. So this angel has been sent and he says this to Daniel. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and have come and I have come because of your words. So this angel is being sent in response to Daniel's prayer, trying to understand what God's purposes and plans are for his people, uh, repenting on behalf of his people. And this angel says, hey, from the day that you started praying, I was sent. However, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. So we've got a three-week period of time that this angel just told Daniel, I was sent the day you started, but it took three weeks for me to get to you. Why? Because this, this being, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, was withstanding me. There was some kind of cosmic battle taking place. Why do I say cosmic? Because the prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a reference to a human. Because that, 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 that angel is talking to Daniel, and the angel is saying, I was held up by this prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then, for 21 days, but then Michael, one of the chief princes, well, you know who Michael is right? Michael the archangel, one of the chief princes. He had to come and help me for I was left there with the king of Persia, the kings of Persia. So Daniel is told by this angel, I was sent the day you started praying, but it took me 21 days. In fact, Michael had to come step in for me in this battle so that I could be free to come to you. There is a prince of Persia or the kingdom of Persia, some kind of spiritual being who has some kind of association with the kingdom of Persia. All right, we'll go on in chapter 10. They have their conversation. The angel tells Daniel some things that he needs to understand about God's plan for his people Israel. And he says in verse 20, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? This is the angel speaking. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So again, same reference to that person. He's going to go back and take over that, that battle what Michael had stepped in on. And when I go out, behold, oh, there's another prince. The prince of Greece will come. Now, as the history of nations has unfolded, Babylon was a great nation that, that Daniel was under captivity in, and then Babylon was taken over by Persia. The Medes and the Persians sometimes are, are grouped together, but Persia. And then Persia is taken over by Greece. That's the next kingdom come. But it's, it's a couple hundred years away from now. But the angel's telling Daniel, I'm going to go back, I'm going to um, go fight against the prince of Persia, when I get out, when I go out, behold, he's telling him the prince of Greece will come. That's another spiritual being who's over this other nation, Greece. But he says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Now, this angel's been talking about nations thus far. He's not talking about individuals who each have a, a, a spiritual being associated with them. He's talking about nations, kingdoms. And so when he says, Michael, your prince, well, what nation, what group of people does Daniel belong to? Israel. And so Michael has some kind of association with Israel, similar to that of the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Greece. Okay, now we could keep diving into Daniel, but my goal with Deuteronomy and Daniel is one, to introduce you just to the fact that there in the scriptures, we have some pretty clear, I think, at least in, in Daniel, uh, in, in case you're not sure about the Deuteronomy 32, some clear associations that there are spiritual beings who are at least associated in some way with nations, territories, kingdoms. And they have some kind of influence over these nations, territories, or kingdoms. All right? Let's go ahead and go to Psalm 82 where we'll spend the rest of our time. 
So there are spiritual beings who are over nations, but many of these spiritual beings influence rebellion against God. So Psalm 82, page 382 in your Bibles. It's only an eight-verse psalm. We're going to dig into it just a little bit. Here we go. It's a psalm of Asaph. That's the guy who wrote it. Psalm 82. I hear some pages turning, so I'm going to give you a second. All right, let's go verses one and two. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. All right. You've got God. You've got a divine council. You've got little g gods. And you've got God holding judgment in the midst of this divine council over little g gods. A little bit of Hebrew for the moment. If you think about the names of God, are you familiar with the name Elohim? Is that those of you who are familiar with the name? Are you familiar? It's, just a, it's just a Hebrew word, Elohim. Now, when we hear that name, oftentimes we are, we're taught, and we, usually when we hear that name taught, it's always associated with God, capital G. The, the God that we know of from the Bible, the Trinitarian God, right? But here you've got, in the Hebrew, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the Elohim. And he holds judgment. So, either you've got God holding judgment over himself, that's crazy, probably not likely, or something else is going on here. It's helpful to understand that just like these English words here, and you see the difference in capitalizations, when we see capital G-O-D, we immediately think of something in our mind. We think of a particular being with certain attributes, characteristics, and we, we know that from the Bible, there's no other being like that being God. When we see little g, we have something else come to mind, right? We have, well, we think of idols or we think of false gods, right? Okay. In Hebrew, the word Elohim does not mean simply the God of the Bible, the word Elohim can be used for any kind of spiritual being that's not confined to a space. Any kind of spiritual being that's not confined to a space, that doesn't have a body. So that word is very versatile. It can be used of God himself, and it can be used of other spiritual beings. It can be used of angelic beings, demonic beings. It can be used of all those kinds. When Samuel, in, um, in the book of Samuel, when he's conjured up by King Saul after Samuel has died and the medium brings Saul, uh, Samuel up, Samuel's described as Elohim. But he's not God. He's just a, 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 um, a, a being that has been brought up who's not limited to space at that moment. That's the word. Okay, so then when we understand that, we understand a little better what's going on here. Elohim, now how do we know it's talking about the God of the Bible? Because of how it describes him. And how do we know it's talking about one person? Because of the way it describes him. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, gods, why do we know it's not the same God? Because God has taken his place in the midst of them. And we know this one has to be translated plural based on some other Hebrew things. And God is holding judgment over these gods. So context helps us understand. Now you can already see that from your English translation. 
But I want you to understand, why are we doing this? Why are we going God and gods and a divine council? Because God has chosen in his sovereignty and his wisdom, just like a king might have a council or a court and he has people that advise him or carry out tasks and stuff for him, God has a divine council, not because he needs one, not because he lacks the ability to carry anything out, but because God has chosen in his sovereignty and his wisdom to have these spiritual beings that carry out his purposes and plans. Now, if that rubs you the wrong way, let me put it to you this way. God doesn't need humanity, but God in his divine sovereignty and his wisdom has chosen to use humanity for his divine purposes, right? It it just kind of fits in that category. And so when he says his divine counsel, this is a group of spiritual beings all kind of gathered together. If you think about the book of Job, the sons of God gathered together in that day, and then the Satan comes along and he's, he's been roaming the earth. Well, that gathering is likely what this divine council is referring to. So you've got a heavenly room picture, okay? You've got a picture of God's throne room and there is these spiritual beings. And in the midst of these spiritual beings, God is taking his place and he's gonna hold a a, a judgment. Now, why is he holding judgment over these gods? Here's God's words. God's words to the little G gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God's going to hold judgment on these little g-gods because they are, they are judging unjustly and they're showing partiality to the wicked. Now, ultimately, I'm going to show you by the time we get to the end of this, this is over the nations. This is over the nations. They have these influences like we saw in Deuteronomy 32 and also Daniel. They have this influence, this association with these different nations that God has given them and yet these sons of God, these divine, or these spiritual beings are rebelling against God by not judging justly, by showing instead partiality, favoritism to the wicked. So God's holding judgment on them for this. All right, let's keep going. Verses three and four. So God's words and his command to them is this. Rescue, uh, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So that's God's command to them. He's holding judgment because they're, they're, they're judging unjustly and they're, they're showing favoritism to the, to the wicked. And so God says, give justice to the weak. You know who the weak are? The powerless. Those who can't fend for themselves. Those who can't speak for themselves. For the fatherless, the orphans, those in foster care, those whose parents have abandoned them, those whose parents have given them over to different, different, different groups of people that are using those kids for, for their purposes and their advantage. Maintain the right of the afflicted, those who are being persecuted, those who are being unjustly oppressed, and the destitute, those who are poor, those who are without, those who are unable to provide themselves. God is telling these people, you, these spiritual beings, you need to speak up for them. You need to give justice to these people. That's God's character. That's God's desire for how these sons of God, these spiritual beings should be ruling over these other nations. Verse four, rescue the weak. Same word, those who are powerless, can't speak for themselves, and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God's, God's standard is clear. Uphold justice. Don't show favoritism to the wicked or to the evil. Speak on behalf and and act on behalf of those who can't for themselves. That's That's God's desire. That's God's intent. That's not what they're doing. God tells us why in verse five. They, speaking of these these little G gods, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth 
are shaken. So these little g gods, they're not upholding justice. They are upholding wickedness. And so God helps us to understand as he's speaking, they don't have knowledge. They don't have understanding. In other words, they're not acting in accordance with what God has revealed, what God has commanded. And their actions and their influence is darkness and it impacts all of the earth. The spiritual beings, these sons of God who are ruling over these other nations and who are not upholding justice, their influence, their actions are shaking the foundations of the earth. All of the earth is impacted by this. So then God, in verse 6, he says to these little g-gods, I said, you are gods. Now see, this verse becomes a problem if we're talking about people, and Mormonism has a heyday with this. Because Mormons believe you do become a god. That when you die, you do become a god if you're a male, and you inherit a planet. I'm not making this up. You inherit a planet and perhaps even a solar system or universe. And that's why in Mormonism, when polygamy was a big deal, they they were marrying multiple women because the women, you don't have that right. In Mormonism, women, you're saved by marrying a man. And so it's really just kind of these Mormon men to marry multiple women and their understanding because they're just saving all these women. And those women will be with them in their afterlife, whatever that is. I'm not making that up. Look it up, right? But Mormons have a heyday with this because, hey, look, here in the scriptures, God says to, if, if you think it's people, humans, God says, you're gods. And that's what we're teaching, they would say. But that's not what God's saying. He's speaking to spiritual beings. I said, you are gods. Sons of the most high, right? That would be another way of talking about sons of God. All of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So God is pronouncing his judgment. He says, I said, you are God. You're, you're part of this group, this Elohim, this, this spiritual being that, that's not confined to a space or a body or a location. I said, you're gods. You're sons of the most high, all of you. And yet, he says, you're gonna die like humans. That's God's judgment. You're gonna die like someone who's limited, who is, who is, who is going to be destroyed. You're going to have that same fate and you're going to fall like any prince. So then the psalmist, as he wraps up his psalm, he says, Arise, O God. Now here's why I I say this is over the nations. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now if God's going to rise up and judge these sons of the Most High that are overseeing these nations, then ultimately God's going to inherit these nations. That's God's plan here on earth. When God, back in Deuteronomy 32, when he scattered all these nations and he divided them up according to the number of sons of God, his, his, his intent was to, not to reject those nations forever, but instead to work through a particular group of people, Israel, to ultimately then bring those nations back to God. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus is ultimately the king over all the world, not just the king of Israel. He's going to be God's king over the nations. This is part of God's plan. Now, This phrase here, the reason I have it in yellow, is because Jesus actually quotes that in John chapter 10. So what do we do with that? John chapter 10, here it is. He's just finished talking about my sheep, hear my voice, they know me. He's warned against false shepherds. And he says, hey, um, nobody can snatch my sheep from my hand. Then he says, and my father who's greater than me, nobody can snatch them from his hand. And then in verse 30, he then says, I and the Father are one. So then the religious leaders that are nearby understand this to be blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus is claiming to be one with God the Father. 
He's claimed to be um, the son of God the Father. And so they're taking up stones to stone him. And the Jews in verse 33, when we skip down, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So their understanding was Jesus is claiming to be the son of God and of the same essence as the father. And so they're going to stone him for blasphemy, which would have been appropriate under the law. But Jesus says in verse 34, is it not written in your law? So he's going back now to Psalm in your law. I said, you were God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, verse 36, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Here's what Jesus is doing. They would have understood Psalm 82 and they would likely would have had the understanding that Psalm 82 was about spiritual beings. That was a common understanding at that day. It was not until later uh, as we started to try to interpret things that we, we either changed our understanding of what this must be saying because it made us uncomfortable or again, there was some differences in manuscripts. But at their time, because they would have had the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they would have had an understanding, a common understanding that there were other spiritual beings. And Jesus is saying, Wait a minute, you're going to blaspheme me because I said I'm the son of God. But you have a psalm, Psalm 82, and in there God says, I call you gods. What Jesus is pointing out is there are other spiritual beings that are called sons of God that are more than human. So it should not be a problem for these religious leaders when Jesus claims to be the father's son, that it should not be a, a big deal for him to claim to be a son who's more than human. They have a category for that, sons of God. And Jesus is just trying to help them understand from their scripture, doesn't God say you are sons of God? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, so who did the word of God come in Psalm 72? Those little g gods. So Jesus is saying if, if he called them gods and the scripture can't be broken, in other words, it, it can't be contradicted, it can't be found false, then do you say of the one whom the father consecrated? Because remember what happened with Jesus? John the Baptist baptizes him and what does God the father do? The spirit comes down as a dove, rests on Jesus, and out from the heavens, the voice of God, this is my beloved son, in whom I am very pleased. He's consecrated. People would have known that. They would have heard that. They would have seen that. And so he says, do you say of the one the father consecrated and sent in the world that you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Now, Jesus is doing one thing even further. Do you remember in Psalm 82, God takes his place amidst the divine council among these other little g-gods, and he holds judgment, okay? Jesus has now claimed, I and the Father are one. Jesus is also saying to them, I'm the one who exercises justice and judgment over all these beings to include humanity. He's the one who has the right to extend justice. That's God's plan. It's not simply that Jesus came for humanity. Jesus came for all of creation. Jesus came to redeem and to exercise judgment on all of creation to include the spiritual realm. What does that judgment look like? We've looked at these verses several times. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. 
Uh, He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, powers, and dominion. We've talked that those are uh, ways of Paul describing spiritual beings. So Jesus is now placed far above all other spiritual beings, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, spiritual beings, and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in him, a reference to Christ. Jesus is, according to John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only, only begotten would be King James. The, most of your translations are going to say one and only or his unique one of a kind son, right? Jesus is the one unique son of God who comes and he's greater than all these other sons of God. He's greater than all these other spiritual beings. Now, keep this in mind. All those other spiritual beings created by God. Therefore, they're not equal to God, which is why God holds judgment on them. Jesus then comes in the death and resurrection, the ascension into heaven. He is now seated above all these other things. So now, how does this all fit in to this? There are spiritual beings ruling over nations who influence rebellion against God. If you think about different areas, states, nations, countries, towns and cities, and you think, man, this place seems particularly dark. Now you have a category as to why that might be because there are other things influencing those areas that you and I can't see. It's in the unseen world, the unseen realm. All right, what about a particular area that they just seem to have a a hang-up on this particular sin? Like this particular area, they just can't get over gambling. They just can't. Everybody who goes to this area, am I talking about a particular place? Maybe, right? But they just can't seem to get over gambling. Why? Perhaps there's a spiritual being influencing that particular type of sin. This area, they, they just seem to have a whole lot of murdering. Why in this area there's all this murdering but not in this area? Because there might be something you don't see influencing that in the unseen realm. What, what about this particular nation? Why is this nation darker than other nations? Because there's likely some kind of spiritual being who is influencing some things over that nation. Okay, you remember in Psalm 82, It says, God commanded them, you need to speak up. You need to give justice to the weak. Those who can't speak for themselves. Those who are powerless. Okay. Do you remember that? Okay. Why does a particular nation kill those who are powerless and weak when they're in the womb and they can't speak for themselves? Why does it seem to be a hang-up here in the United States more than anywhere else? because there's likely some kind of spiritual being or beings that are influencing some things that we can't see. And listen, listen, this is for digging into another day, but nowhere in Daniel, nowhere in Psalms 82, did we see the human person directly engaging with the the territorial spirit, but we saw them calling on God or we saw other spiritual beings engaging in battle. So what's our role? I I can't necessarily, based on the scriptures we looked at today, I can't go and say, I'm gonna gonna call down certain spirits. I I don't necessarily see that, right? I'm gonna be a little more cautious, but I'm gonna say, God, help me to be clear. Help me to see more clearly what's going on. And if I know these are the types of injustices that are influenced by things I can't see, God, I'm calling on you. 
I'm calling on you to engage in this and a particular place that might be under the influence of these, nation, uh, these, these spiritual beings, they're not gonna be set free unless there's repentance, right? So now I'm praying for, for people to repent of those sins. I'm praying, God, that you would engage that in the cosmic realm in places I can't, that I'm not called to. That this is how this matters to us. As I start to understand there's categories for spiritual beings that are influencing things in all these different places because America is not a Christian nation. It is a nation that has Christians, but no longer is America a Christian nation if it was to begin with. It is a group of people who are Christian, but man, we have Muslims and we have Hindus and we have atheists and our government accommodates all of that through the First Amendment. So we are not a nation like Israel that has a special, unique relationship to God. I'm sorry, not a popular opinion, but if I can, if I can help you to see that, then that's gonna change the way you interact with the country, the people that we live in. It's gonna change the way I pray for my leaders. It changes everything because it may not be God guiding all this. It can't be when our nation is putting together, uh, putting to death all these, these babies. When, when, when we've got government that is approving of things that nowhere would God ever approve of. That's not God. It's either God has given the people over to their sinful desires, right? That's a possibility, Romans 8, I mean, Romans 1. Or there's also the spiritual being or beings that are influencing things. And unless a people repents, they're not gonna be free from that. Individuals can get free from that. But as a group of people, as a country, as a group of states, no. So this changes, I hope you see this, this changes the way I view everything that's taken place in the world. It's not just human politics. There's more to it. And I can't just go and elect my way out of a problem. I've got to be praying that God would intervene. And I can work within my systems, but I've got to be praying God intervene. There are things going on that I can't see that you know. God intervene. Bring, it would be totally appropriate. Bring your angels to bear on these things. Totally appropriate. Daniel, Psalms, 82. There are spiritual beings ruling over nations who influence rebellion against God. But Christ is greater. And he has been raised and he is seated at the right hand of the Father far above all rules, power, and authority. Therefore, the victory is in Christ. Therefore, those who are in Christ, we come before the Father with boldness because of the access given to us through Christ. And we can intercede and we can make our requests known to God. And we ask God to step in where we're unable. Ooh. Let's just take a moment and let that sit. Remember, June 5th is coming. If you have questions, we get to talk about these kind of things. But let's just ask the Lord, God, show me what you're saying through your word. Give me understanding. Give me greater understanding. Help me to understand how it impacts the way I live and I, I relate to things, how I pray. Let's just let the Lord speak to us for a moment.
here in just a moment when we dismiss. Some of you might like prayer, some additional prayer or maybe some, some prayer for something else going on. We'll have members of our prayer team spread out across the room. If you want to be, have prayer, but maybe you want it in a more private place, we have a room right outside these two doors on, on, on your left, my right. And the room there is 117, and they'll have a few members there of that team available to pray with you. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would take your word and let your spirit give us understanding. And, God, if this is one of those things that are just expanding our minds, then, God, give, us, give our minds elasticity to grasp what you might be showing us. That we might expand our worldview to, to include these types of things that you seem to reveal in your scriptures. But then, God, let your spirit show me how do I live differently because of this? What does my, my prayer look like now because of this? How do I interact with the systems and the things that I interact with on an everyday basis? How do I interact with those things in light of understanding this? God, give us understanding and then help us to be obedient to that. Here, before we dismiss, if you're part of that prayer team, if you wanna go ahead and make your way to a few places in the room so that way you can be available when, uh, when we dismiss here in just a moment. And then those of you who might be covering room 117, if I can get a couple of you guys to head out there. All right, with that, if you're able, please stand and we'll dismiss. There are things in the word of God that are hard to swallow. But man, there are things about your God that's hard to swallow because he's not like us. And I'm grateful for that, aren't you? So depart from here and, and know that your God is set apart from every other being. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. He's the supreme being. And he knows you and Christ and he loves you in Christ. He wants you to know him. Depart from here in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week.